Foundation bylaws. This amendment would add a second at-large seat to the national board, expanding the maximum possible size of the board from 23 to 24 members. The amendment would also eliminate the February 15th deadline for local delegate assemblies to nominate at-large candidates. This amendment will be voted on by the board at its June 2nd meeting in New York City and by each of the five network stations local station board delegate assemblies. It must pass by a majority vote at three of the five stations. For the full text of this bylaws amendment, log on to Pacifica.org or call 510-849-2590 to request a copy by mail. It's Free Speech Radio, 94.1 FM, KPFA, 89.3 FM, KPFB, and 88.1 KFCF in Fresno. It's 3 p.m. Time now for Cover to Cover Open Book. Buenas tardes, and welcome to Cover to Cover Open Book. I'm Amelia Gonzalez. Hoy es 5 de mayo, and no, it's not Mexican Independence Day, and it's not a U.S. holiday, and yet, it's a day of great importance for the Mexican and Chicano communities. It marks the victory of the Mexican army over the French in La Batalla de Puebla that took place the morning of May 5, 1862. Although the Mexican army was eventually defeated, the Batalla de Puebla came to represent a symbol of Mexican unity and patriotism. With this victory, Mexico demonstrated to the world that her people were willing to defend themselves of any foreign intervention. For the Chicano community, it has become a day to celebrate pride, independence, and freedom. This afternoon, on Open Book, we mark this day by bringing you an afternoon with Chicano poet, writer, and educator, Tomas Riley. Stay with us. Channels of the new for real fall, 16 stories of an antique room apartments where Victoria runs crooked under late Victorians. Dipping from the sloping sun, making room for undone renovations and the sprawl of this new street, maintaining life of its own, because this is your town, it's my town, it's any town, USA.
lights Grow weary in the haze of gray Saturdays And pulsing cars line up to start the plucking at the intersection But those on foot survey so many rows of luggage racks Line sidewalks for a population bent on traveling home Always departing as they arrive in ten dollar double bag With pockets lined with telehitos and lotto tickets scratching At the chances for return A una isla encantada A una montaña en Centro America A un rancho lindo y lejos de ese pueblo congelado is uh, one of the first poems I wrote when I came to San Francisco in 2003. Tomás Riley talking about his poem that we started with, Cuando Ganamos. Cuando Ganamos is from his collection of poetry, Masik, which we're talking about today. And really, it's, it's based on two things. It begins with the assumption that we're all migrating from somewhere and uh, looking for a place to call home. And that's definitely how I was feeling, having grown up in San Diego and uh, spent my whole life there and then being a recent arrival to the city and just trying to get to, you know, the, know the lay of the land of the mission district where I landed. And, um, what I was noticing is that, uh, you know, there were a lot of sort of pilgrims wandering down Mission Street. And one Saturday afternoon, it was drizzling. And I remember standing on the corner of 25th and Mission and there was a line out the cor- um, around the corner from one of the corner stores. And it turns out they were all waiting to buy lotto tickets. Um, and I was, you know, started meditating on what it might have been that they would spend those uh, that dream money on, and uh, so that's where that poem comes from, really. Mm-hmm. And so you have the universality of buying lottery tickets, and, <laughs> right. and that dreaming. But what differences have resonated with you in terms of coming from a border town like San Diego to um, San Francisco? One of the things I noticed right away is that the consciousness is different in terms of people's willingness to be open to you as an artist. San Diego has a way of being somewhat provincial. I mean, it's my hometown, and I hate to put it down that way, in that way. But at the same time, you know, the part of the reason I started writing 
was to write myself out from under the sort of Republican oppression that goes on in San Diego. I mean, there's a reason Arnold Schwarzenegger chose that city to announce his bid for re-election. It's because he's got a strong support base there. It also being the military town. And, and then beyond that, just living near the border and watching the literal oppression of people um, nightly with the helicopters flying around and the people being hauled off in, in the border patrol vans and um, my activism there patrolling the border and trying to make sure that there was water in the desert all those things made me you know really conscious of the fact that there was um, something really unsupportive about Southern California for me so coming here I recognized that people have struggled to make it this far and having seen you know the point of entry I'm really 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 amazed at um, the, the strength of the community that I see in fact, you know, watching two and three generations of folks that, you know, have lived in, in a place like the Mission District is is amazing to me, considering that we see so many new arrivals that just pass through in a border town, you know, myself being an exception. You, know. you have been part of the Taco Shop Poets that has a, a long history, and I wondered if maybe you might share that experience, and what are the Taco Shop Poets? Well, the Taco Shop Poets is... Uh, is uh, a poetry spoken word collective from San Diego. Um, the idea came from, you know, the, f the few of us bilingual poets that were floating around the city to the two or three open mics that were actually available at the time. Um, realized that when we when we got on stage in front of those audiences that were largely cappuccino sipping, monocultural um, and monolingual, um, felt like we weren't really being received. Um, I guess the context was wrong. Uh, so what we did was we created a whole new space by removing ourselves from that sort of bourgeois coffee shop environment and taking it into something much more real and started doing guerrilla-style readings in the taco shops. And it began, you know, very simply with us just huddling together in a corner of a taqueria and one of us beginning to blurt out a poem. And then it began to grow and snowball, and then we found ourselves reading on buses and the trolleys and at bus stops and public, you know, in public places. And the idea being that, like, once we found, like, a cultural foundation in the, in the taqueria, then we felt like no longer was our, you know, our bilingual expression and the concerns that we had for our community no longer was that secondary. It was, like, the primary focus of that environment. And I think it needed to be decontextualized, the, the, purpose of poetry being that it's so often relegated to the academy and the classroom and we recognize right off the bat that we weren't writing for the academy or the classroom we were writing for our community and it definitely affected the way that we presented our work and we we had a 10-year history um, we just been celebrating our 10th anniversary just last summer and you know it's one of those things where it's surprising that a group can stay together that long you know we did it and that's uh, that's the legacy I hope to leave. It's just that we had, you know, a bunch of us, different kinds of, of Latinos representing different phases and facets of the Latino experience and managing to coalesce for that long. I think it was sort of a model of how we can do these uh, kind of communal artistic projects. And so as of last year, you published your poetry book, Masik, which is what we're talking about today. And I wanted to start off with asking you, for those that might be Nahuatl challenged, right. what does uh, Masik mean? Masik means um, uh, something whole or complete. And um, I think 
in a larger sense, what it means is it was a punctuation point on my time with the Taco Shop Poets and trying to come full circle. All of the time that I was involved with that group, everything was devoted to the collective, and none of us sought any sort of individual um, projects or even any individual rewards. Everyone was, de- everyone was devoted to maintaining the, the collective creative environment. And so Masik meant to me at that point that it was time to like come full circle and reach a point where I was like happy with the work that I had been doing over the last 10 years. And then it coincides with the birth of my son, who bears the same name. And I'm not sure which came first, you know, because his wholeness is something that I want to sustain. And he can't be whole unless I remain whole. And so the two seem to go together in a way that, um, you know, one can't exist without the other for me. Let's talk about that paralleling of the fathering and the wholeness that you're talking about. Also, the process of completion in as a poet, as an artist. One of the things I definitely wanted to leave behind with this book um, devoted to my son was um, some sort of a legacy uh a retracing of ancestry, beginning with the, some of the people that we forget about, uh, the ones closest to us, you know, and I take steps backwards through our, my father, his grandfather that he will never meet, and um, his great-grandfather, and basically just retracing their steps because I felt like I owed him that. And like a lot of folks, you know, without getting too into my own personal psychoanalysis, is that, you know, your relations with your family are... are strange sometimes and you have to work those issues out and I wanted to prepare myself to become a father and I, so I had to work out and exercise some of those three things that I had um, lingering in my relationship with my father so that's where it began is trying to um, find a place where I could start with a clean slate and be honest and and uh, hopefully it meant that that would translate into my not passing on the mistakes of the past onto my son. And you do that in the fourth part of your book, Masik, yeah. right? That's the legacy that you're hoping to leave for your son. Can you talk about that? Well, it's it started as um, as one long poem. Actually, I just wanted to write a poem about his great-grandfather and his arrival and he was somebody that I never even met because he was, uh, he was killed in World War II. He was a Navy veteran and um, I never even got to know him. My mother didn't even get to know him very well, but you know, I just wanted to tell the story of his arrival as a you know, point of departure for at least at least that far back. This is what we know about where we come from, and um, then it became just sort of processing through all of the other key figures: his wife, my great my grandmother, his my son's great grandmother, right, mm-hmm. and my mother and my father, and basically just trying to trace um, a lineage and find some continuity there between generation to generation. And, and analyze what was passed on from one generation to the other, for better or for worse. Hindsight is always twenty twenty, right? right? There's understanding that comes in with, with that retrospective look at, at one's past. How has that affected your writing? Yeah, it's definitely helped me. I mean, it's, it was a literal cleaning out of the closet. Um, as I said before, everything I did with TSP, the Taco Shop Post, was devoted to um, community. community. And, mm-hmm. and this was the first time that I, that I wrote internally and it was uh like i said there's an honesty in that that you know is is not going to happen when your when your attention is always focused on the outside world and i think it was just you know an effort for me to place myself in this communal struggle you know you reach a point where you've been an activist for a long time and you're not sure what your activism has built in in relation to like the communal struggle and and you just want to take stock of like what has this done for me and what have i done for the community and so that, it, to me, is the point of introspection. Just a, it, At least in this book, it was a way for me to find my place again. 
Is there something from that part that you might want to share with us? Uh, yeah, actually, I'll start with um, the poem that concludes. It's actually all one piece, but the section that uh, concludes the book is um, about Masik's arrival, and uh, it's called You Didn't Come Gently. And it uh, proceeds from the, the Dylan Thomas quote, Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night, which I felt like was um, you know some fatherly advice that we could kind of leave behind because you know the the idea that the point of life is just not to die right. was a little uh, was a little shallow. So this is called "You Didn't Come Gently." Mm-hmm. A ritual of long nights stretched through darkness, raging only from this fatherly advice. As I say, breathe, willing your body see me pushing down the trail between rebellion and denial. Dry is all out want, but both the blessing and the loss cause for empirical relief from legs that just won't genuflect from sunrise, dragging on towards your revival. Do not go gently. As if we got a choice, we fighting just because one death, one thousand death, we come back despite death, no light, no warnings, rising unafraid. See western deities and pragmatists love fear, but new sons, they love fathers. Love the tough love from the nose down to the chin and feel no end there. Call it faith, a lifetime exercising father lost in this since I was eight with tender fists and want to find my mother. Nodding, always nodding with no need for explanation or for language, and nobody sang up through the valley of the sparrow that you will die, and you don't want to die. Some prophecies ring true or through you tell a child this in the elevated language damn the poets it was not enough now not enough warm not enough beginning not to be checking at my back for brawny paper towel chested america see my son was coming up my arms had become bristles through my coat there wasn't no we yet nowhere meaning me and him and dylan thomas looked as crooked as a shrinking woman shuffle for a quarter on 22nd street saturday night call him crooked as he ought to be sometimes ought not to be no poets that was thomas riley Poet, writer, educator, and papa. Yeah. <laughs> Former definitely. member of the Taco Shop Poets. Yeah, definitely a journey. It obviously has colored your perspective in terms of being the artist that you are mm-hmm. and uh, maybe having that permission to go to that intimate space that you were talking about that uh, right. that sometimes is, is a little difficult because sometimes it's a little easier to be out taking care of what's outside That's right. and, and not taking care of what's, what's inside because it's very easy as activists, mm-hmm. as, you know, folks that, you know, we're doing stuff in the community. Is that an issue for you at all? Definitely. I mean, I came up to San Francisco initially to be uh, a school teacher. I was teaching fourth grade in the Mission District, and um, it was about my fifth year in the classroom. Before that, I had spent some time teaching Chicano Studies at San Diego State, and um, one of the things that I had recognized having entered my my third decade was um, I was starting to get kind of (laughs) cynical. I was starting to, to recognize that as much as I cared, I needed to make sure that everyone else cared, and then that that pressure just starts to weigh you down, and it starts to make you wonder, oh, what is the point? And so, for me, it was really necessary to go internal and introspective, just because I wanted to erase that cynicism and you know sustain and affirm all the things that I really believe. Well, I wanted to talk about that cynicism. A lot of times, our youth get that because it's some dire times that we're living through, especially when you look at the state of our educational system. Exactly. exactly. When you look at how our our youth are being criminal criminalized daily all of that is just like how do you teach them to take risks in terms of the writing process that is very personal especially when you're talking about poetry how do you convey to them that trust in in themselves well the first step is to be confident enough in yourself to take those risks because a lot of us who call ourselves educators um understand the practice 
but we don't understand the real drive behind the practice. You know, and by that I mean what is it that motivates us to create in the first place is something that's difficult for us to identify in ourselves. And that's um, something that you're talking about transferring on to young people. And especially when you're teaching, like I was teaching fourth graders and below, and then before that college students, what I'd seen is that um, there was a really disheartened kind of climate throughout all of the classrooms that I was working in just because of the conditions of the time. I mean, it was 2003. At the end of that school year, some 1,400 pink slips were handed out, and all the teachers were feeling the weight of this, like, oh, my goodness, if we don't improve, then everything is at stake. And and that intense pressure leads to um, basically you start turning for someone to point a finger at and other places to place the blame and... and um, Throughout all of that, you still have to maintain the smile in in your um, classroom that is what makes your students ready to um, participate and take mm-hmm. risks. I, I really can't translate how that happens. It's, it's, it's a nurturing that happens when you really, really bond and connect with students, especially the young ones, and when you see them really responding to what it is that... Uh, what it is that's motivating and, and and creating this cycle that they're caught up in, then I think that's when they they start to tap into what you're trying to offer them. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's really answering the question because it is really a difficult question to answer. How do you teach someone to be motivated and how do you teach someone to keep striving despite all of the odds that are against them? Um, mm-hmm. I still can't say with any certainty what that is. I just know that it happens when we are fully present as mentors and educators. Mm-hmm. Well, that's true. And I think that sometimes it's it's actually finding some of that, the music in, in the streets of the mission. <laughs> right. It is about validating their experience and right. getting them to recognize that everything around them is is potential for poetry. So often what's taught to, the, to young people is that um, their world is not poetic it's not part of the literary continuum and you have to be you know some 40 year old um you know well studied well educated uh you know from the academy mm-hmm. to actually you know have value on the page but i think especially with my the work that i do at youth speaks and and the work that i've done with young people in the classrooms it's it's putting an end to that conversation it's um, that kind of thinking that is that young people can be a part of the literary conversation and you don't have to reach a certain point to start naming your world and if you can point to the objects around you and recognize their inherent beauty like the recognize the beauty in the mundane the stuff that people overlook the the paintings on the sidewalk the you know the uh the, the crowds that push down mission street or 24th street all those things are are sites where People are struggling and surviving, and survival is one of the most beautiful things there is. I'm reminded as you're speaking of movement freestyles for the dying sun. Mm-hmm. That's something that resonated with me in finding that musicality, if you will, on the streets of any streets, really. I mean, it's yeah, specific definitely. to what we live through. That was definitely something that uh, I was struggling to do in that piece. I was looking for a way to reconcile like my, my love for, for hip-hop music and my love for Chicano history and put the two together and, you know, recontextualize both. And in that way, I guess I was naming all those things about music and the street as well as naming, you know, myself and placing myself in the movement. March, Fonson, the guitarron, and liquefied P-Funk maintains Norteños Masaya. 
Vicente Fernández is chilling in his b-boy stands, talking trash about que de raro tiene no, el más raro que tenemos. Ni llamas, timbos, tripping, ain't no half stepping in the movement. This mariachi music riffs against the twilight of an old mech head nod. These hands fly, fletch it fast to dominate the plate, rotating in the dark obsidian, been outcast on the remix. Overrun by Salva Sagrada con su machete, la mano mascarada. Nosotros, hombres y mujeres, íntegros y libres, estamos conscientes de que la guerra que declaramos es una medida última, pero justa. But don't call it a comeback. We still got mobs of Maramasawales moving at the acceleration of gravity. Meditating on the microcosm of the 12 bench and the buried mirrors are more than they can stand while who riding in a county van. This is movement in the middle of Caras Perdidas, un homenaje al pasaje suroeste where pilot pins won't take to vinyl, where the need to draw the line, where the morning left to midnight of our migration on the dance floor. Like, wait, 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 wait. You mean there's four sacred directions and all that ceremony too? Yo, I might have to take two and pass. Take two and pass. Take two and pass. Won't get off my... See, this movement finds a movement in repose. A mass unanswered prayer of signs and sirens, baked beats, rooming off a red sun caught between the upkeep and the downstroke. Movimiento or movie memento on a 45 waxing ono mythopoeic when the needle hits the groove. Old head still bouncing to the bank close to the real estate. This movement spins 360 and freeze. We let the beat drop into up rocks leaning toward the center of cyphers come lately with flare kicks, scissors slicing, hooded heads with ash and empty bottles running off the RPM. This is movement measured in the line length of a freestyle for the dying sun. A rough face that leapt into the lyric ticking tongue glyphs up the temple steps with rhymes from reed songs rolling to the east my brother to the east where the whole house bounce rooftops and the sky begins brand new so you can throw your hands to the sky and wave them from side to side but if you came here to spark up a movement man you better get here for the whole thing dies how important is it for you to translate the chicano experience you know i think that's that's one of the main purposes i write I was a lit student in college, right? So I had to carry around four-inch thick Norton anthologies with paper-thin, you know, uh, really thin pages and tons and tons and tons of footnotes. And I had to know who Orpheus was and I had to know who Medea was and I had to know all those things. So what was really important to me, particularly in that piece, is I can't wait, you know, that until some scholar finds this text on the shelf somewhere and has to look up, you know, what, what is a Masawale or, or who were the Masawales, right? And, or who was he referencing there? Was he, was he referencing LL Cool J in that song? You know, and I can't wait until those footnotes appear if, um, you know, my, my stuff is ever anthologized. And so, yeah, it was definitely a point of pride to put in, um, the knowledge that we share and really offer back to sort of recreate the experience of having to discover for somebody who doesn't necessarily understand the experience. And my Chicano experience is very different from, you know, the the experience of the people who created the literature before me in the sense that, like, when I was, you know, studying English literature, I had no cultural context to, to connect to that. So I, wanted, I had to make an effort to understand that. And that's important to me, that people make an effort to come back and... and uh, look at my work with um, with the same kind of effort that I put into reading others' work. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the Chicano experience is a valuable one. It's, it's a multiple one, and it's one that really, I, I wouldn't be the same if I didn't recognize that it was my experience, too. And what's your touchstone as a poet? Who do you go back to in terms of feeding mm-hmm. your, your creative soul? I look at poets like uh, Martin Espada, I would say Luis Rodriguez, uh, Lorna Lee Cervantes, just the list goes on and on i could keep going there was a generation before me that really paved the way opened the door all of the new yorican poets from the early days of the new yorican poets cafe miguel algarin 
and then there are, you know, my contemporaries, the Saul Williams, the Willie Perdomos, and, mm-hmm. and folks like that. Carl Hancock Rux is a big influence on my work. And all of these people are still with us, and so it's important to, to me to, like, uh, sustain, you know, the, their effort and create something that honors what they've done. So, what's coming up in terms of projects for you? Well, the the primary project right now is uh, taking this book out into the world. Uh, it was just released in December, and I haven't had it. Uh, this is the first chance I've had to actually celebrate its release, just because so much of the work is in making sure it gets to the right people, and people start reading it and getting their feedback. And, and now that it's out there, you know, yesterday I went to City Lights Bookstore and saw it sitting on the shelves, and, you know, I stopped and had a moment just to see it, you know, joining all those books. But really, it's about, you know, getting the word out there that this book exists and you know after that i guess we just start working on the next one i'm also a part of uh Kalaka press's restless book in here volume three which is a collaborative cd that'll be coming out i think by the end of this year they've been pushing it along for a couple of months now but there's just a few more pieces that need to be recorded and yeah i'll be on that cd and uh after that it's um off to new york to uh participate in the uh, Brave Voices International Teen Slam. Oh, great. That, uh-huh. uh, you know, that's through Youth Speaks, where we're going to be hosting 350 kids from all over the country to compete for the uh, National Teen Poetry Slam title. Welcome, Riley. I want to thank you so much for thank joining for us having- here. You just heard an interview with Chicano poet and educator Tomas Riley. He's a veteran of the seminal Chicano spoken word collective, the Taco Shop Poets. And currently, he works as a youth development program director at Youth Speaks, a literary arts organization for teen writers in San Francisco. He has recently released his book of poetry, Masit. You could find out more about Tomas and his writings by going to yofulio.com or calacapress.com. I've been Amelia Gonzalez. If you have any questions or comments, you could call me at 510-848-6767, extension 212. Many thanks to Erica and Nick for being at the controls and to you for listening. And the